Good morning. Welcome again. We continue in the Psalms of Ascents. This morning we're at Psalm 126. It's on page 517 of our Blue Church Bibles. Uh, whether you're using one of those Bibles or if you have your own Bible or even if you're just using your phone, I would, as always, encourage you to keep your Bibles open in front of you. Uh, the Psalms, like much of the Bible, are poetry. Poetry is uh, somewhat intimidating and, and unfamiliar to many of us in our society. Uh, but I want you guys to see with it in front of you what's happening. There's a couple of things going on in this poem, uh, almost uh, contradictory with each other. Uh, there's some tensions here. I'd be curious to see if you, you catch them as, even as I'm reading it, and we'll talk about it. Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Ask God to help us understand his word. Father, we thank you for speaking to us once again through this ancient poem. Speak not only to our minds, but cause your truths to take root in our hearts so that they might bear fruit in this sad and often baffling world. Help us in the name of Jesus as we come to this word that shows us his glory. Amen. I've told some of you before that one of my favorite authors is Louisianan Walker Percy. He, uh, he's not alive anymore, but in the 80s he wrote a satirical self-help book, which is one of my favorite books. And there's a part in that book where he's talking about how so many people get so anxious uh, in situations where they have to talk to strangers, in social situations. Uh, and so he, in this, it's, again, it's satire, but he's making really serious points. Uh, when he's talking about how anxious we get uh, at social gatherings, he asks the reader, he gives the reader a quiz, a self-help quiz. He says, imagine that you found yourself caught in an intolerable one-on-one -on -one conversation at a Los Angeles cocktail party from which there's no escape. And then here's the quiz. And listen and answer for yourself which of these you would choose. He says, now, which of these two events would you prefer to take place? Number one, that the other person become more and more witty and charming, the music more beautiful, the scene transform to a stunning Italian villa on the loveliest night of the year, while you find yourself more and more at a loss. That's option one. Or number two, that you are still in L.A., and the chandeliers begin to rattle. A huge earthquake takes place, but presently you find yourself and the other person alive and well, and you're talking under a mound of rubble. And then he says this, if your choice is number two, explain why it's possible for a true conversation to take place under the conditions of number two, but not number one. 
something like that astonished conversation under the rubble is how this psalm begins. This sense of wonder and camaraderie that comes in the wake of escaping the inescapable with somebody else right there with you who was just as powerless as you. The Bible teaches that God's intervention into our world and into our lives his saving us from a cosmic disaster far worse than any mere earthquake. The Bible teaches that this salvation is so radical that the only proper response to it is awe. Verse 1 here says that when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. The idea here, I think, is that God has done something so wonderful that you can hardly believe that it's true. God's people look back on what he's done for them and they wonder, can it really be? Am I in a dream? Is this a fairy tale? And yet so many people today look at God or they look at Christianity and they think it's something so small. Something so insignificant, something so boring. But when you look back at what God's done for you and for this world, are you amazed? Do you have this sense of awe? Now I know. Your experience, experiences in the past, maybe your experience in the present, your experience raises all kinds of objections to that idea. We have so many reasons to be cynical and jaded. And even if you agree that you should be more amazed by what God has given you and done for you, your suffering and your loss and your disappointment often speak so much more loudly. Now there is a real tension here. And this psalm wrestles with it. I don't know if you caught it. I'm going to point it out to you later. You might have noticed... At the beginning here that the psalmist is looking backwards at something that happened in the past. Both God's wonderful intervention and our sense of joy over it. They're both in the rear view mirror. But what about now? We're going to get there, but I don't want to go too fast. I want you to see in these first couple verses what it's like to enjoy and to experience God's dramatic restoration. I want us to pause a bit to consider what an adventure it is to experience God's saving work in his world and among his people. Now this psalm was probably written in the wake of Israel's return from its traumatic exile far from home. They were trapped in Babylon for many decades. The language in verse 1 about restoring fortunes is closely related to Hebrew language about bringing back captives. And that return from exile was something that God had promised for a long time through his prophets. But in the face of the Babylonian empire's might and the face of their own weakness, Israel just could not imagine how this restoration could ever actually happen. 
But then Babylon fell. And shockingly, the ruler who took over sent Israel back to their homeland and even helped them to rebuild their lives. It was literally a dream come true. But the language here is generic enough so that it could apply to any time in the life of God's people when he dramatically intervened, when he rescued them from a situation of impossible and inescapable suffering, when God did something for them that they could not possibly do for themselves. And so whatever the original situation was when the psalm was written, the psalmist is saying that experiencing God's restoration filled our mouths with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Some of us have had the experience, maybe somewhat of a horrified experience, but assume that it was a good experience. Some of us have had the experience of walking in on our own surprise birthday party. Or maybe for some of us a better uh, situation, the situation of a dear friend showing up unexpectedly for a visit. The psalmist says that God showing up in the midst of insurmountable suffering is like that. He says, back then we could not help laughing. We were hooting and hollering for joy like a bunch of maniacs. Because it's wonderful to see God at work. And the psalmist says that the nations all around Israel noticed too. God had done something so spectacular, something so inexplicable that even those who were worshiping other gods looked at them and said, Wow, the Lord has done great things for these people. But then in verse 3, look at verse 3. In verse 3, the psalmist pauses. He's meditating on God's work in the past, owning it for himself, absorbing it for God's people today. He takes up the joyful observation of the nations as his own and their own reflection. He says, the Lord has done great things for us. And then he underscores the significance of this for his and for their own time. He says, we are glad. And so you see what's going on there? By intentionally reminding themselves of God's wonderful work in the past, God's people cultivate a sense of wonder in the present. Now, this is important for us to understand today, especially since we might be tempted to despair as we look at our own lives, at our own hearts, as we look at the church in America, as we look at our wider society, we might be filled with cynicism and despair. And so we need to remind ourselves that and how God has been mightily working for us in the past. Now this, of course, includes the big stories of God saving his people, not least the stories of the Old Testament. Like the psalmist here today, we can look back on Israel's story as our story. We can really read it with this pronoun on our lips. It's ours. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul does in one of his letters to the Corinthians. Remember that church in Corinth was made up mostly of Greeks and Romans who had uh, recently been worshiping all the Greek and Roman gods. They were very unfamiliar with the Old Testament. They were very unfamiliar with the Old Testament God. And they became Christians. And Paul's writing a letter to them. And Paul says to them, he says, God rescued 
our fathers from Egypt and then provided for our fathers in the wilderness. It's not just something for people of Jewish ancestry. Paul says this is something for all of us as Jesus' people. This is our story. The story of Israel truly is our story now. And so we need to read and absorb it in the Old Testament as such. But of course we also need to see God's great works in the New Testament also as ours. Jesus' miraculous healings, his conquest of demons, his resurrection from the dead, his giving of the Holy Spirit to empower the church for its work in the world. All of these things are also our story. This was God working for us. And then beyond the New Testament, this is a point I harp on sometimes with you guys, beyond the New Testament, we should be studying and contemplating the experience of the church throughout history, the church around the world today, all these wonderful and often strange and even surprising things that God has done for his people and God's done through his people throughout the centuries when they've faced opposition and suffering that they were totally powerless to overcome. But when we look back at these great things that God has done, we're not only talking about big things. When we look at the great things that God does, We're not only talking about spectacular things. We also, maybe especially, need to be looking at the small things. We can and we should look back on our own lives, our own families, our own church, for places and episodes and stories where we saw God rescuing us, where we saw God mightily helping us. Even if in the eyes of other people, or even you, These things are small or invisible. To cultivate this kind of childlike wonder, this kind of gladness we've been talking about, we have to give prayerful attention to how God has been doing these great but perhaps small things in the past. One idea, how do you do that? One idea uh, is you literally get a new journal And you start writing down for yourself all the things you can remember that God's done for you. Not just for yourself in the present, but for yourself in the future. Because we tend to forget these things. And it's helpful to write it down. Well, what about you? Can and do you say, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad? Not just we used to be glad when I went to summer camp as a teenager and threw pine cones in the fire on the last night and cried a bunch. We are glad. But here we return to the tension and the struggle that we talked about earlier. We've been talking about what God has done in the past. But, many of us might be saying this morning, that was then. What about now? I love this psalm. I love poetry. This psalm is a beautiful picture of poetry. I love how this psalm anticipates so perfectly the way that the struggles of the present clash with the triumphs of the past. Look at verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. This is the same language popping up here that we saw in the very first line where the psalmist was rejoicing to consider how the Lord had restored the fortunes or recovered the captives of God's people in the past. 
And so now, without skipping a beat, the psalmist has just said, we are glad, but immediately also says, now Lord, restore our fortunes. Reverse our captivity. He's saying, just like you did it for us back then, do it again for us today. So we do look back to what God has done in the past, and we should be celebrating it. But of course, life and relationships and church and work in this world is still deeply painful, deeply baffling. It's true, we have already seen God at work, but of course, we cannot help but to see the ways that God has not yet worked. One of the central uh, pieces of the New Testament uh, about who Jesus is and what it means now that he's come, one of the central elements of what the New Testament is teaching is this idea that God's kingdom is truly here, but that it's not yet here fully. Uh, This idea that the kingdom, this is the language sometimes theologians use, that they'll say the kingdom has been inaugurated, but it's not yet consummated. Uh, One of the best illustrations of this I've heard is that we are living in between D-Day, the invasion of Normandy, it's all over for Hitler, it's just downhill for World War II. We're in between D-Day and V-Day. Haven't actually finished yet, but the outcome is certain. That's what it's like to be a Christian. We are living, the New Testament says, we're living in two worlds at once. We are living in the fallen, sinful world of what the Bible calls the old creation. But in some wonderfully important ways, we are also already experiencing the renewed world of what the Bible calls the new creation. So, just like in this psalm, we can and we should rejoice in the great works of rescue that God has done for us. But we also should be longing for him to finish his great work of rescue. His great work of rescue is a cosmic work. God is going to rescue the whole universe. He's going to transform all of it. But God's rescue is also personal. It's something for me. It's something for us as a people. But are we just asking God for a little bit of help around the margins? Look at the imagery here. The psalmist cries out for God to restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. Uh, The Negev is an area. It's the desert wilderness in the very far south of Israel, uh, kind of part of the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, The stream beds there in the Negev, it's a desert. It's a total desert. The stream beds there are almost always totally dry. But occasionally, rain causes them to suddenly surge with floodwaters right there in the middle of the desert. And so you can see what the psalmist is saying. When you ask God to restore our fortunes, you are not asking for something tiny or pathetic or ordinary. You are looking to God to accomplish great things, even miraculous things. We want him to restore, we want him to rescue us in ways and in places that we cannot accomplish ourselves. We want him to work with his wonderfully unexpected, his wonderfully unpredictable ways as we languish in these terribly dry and depleted places. And so it's now that the poem shifts 
from this awe that comes from remembering God's restoration in the past. Now it shifts to the hope of expecting restoration in the future. We can and we should be filled with childlike wonder as we see God's work of restoration with fresh eyes. But in verses 5 and 6, we see that the hope of longing for future restoration means that those fresh eyes are going to be filled with tears. Verse 5 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Jesus' followers are living in between the old creation and the new creation. We are living with his kingdom truly here, but not yet fully here. And here you see that this means that we're going to be experiencing a great deal of pain and sorrow. There's still going to be weeping. There's going to be a lot of it. But we're not merely weeping. We're not merely weeping. The psalm places us in the position of the weeping farmer. We are sowing seed in the midst of it all. And so the psalm suddenly introduces this new dynamic for all of this lovely and powerful language about how we're just watching and remembering and requesting that God do something spectacular. These last couple verses also show us that there's work for us to be doing. Looking for God's future restoration of all things does not mean you just sit around. It does not even mean that you just sit around praying. We engage in all kinds of small, ordinary tasks in the midst of our small, ordinary vocations. We are not heroes. We are just like an ancient farmer. We are sowing seed once again with weeping perhaps because of terrible weather, perhaps because uh, and for many farmers in the ancient world living on the edge of starvation, they would run low on grain at the end of the season, but would have to sow it anyways in hopes that God would provide something far more next year for them to eat. And so we, like the farmer here, must entrust ourselves to, in our efforts to forces and conditions that are far outside of our control. We have to entrust ourselves to God as we plow our dusty little corner of the kingdom. And there's, of course, all kinds of ways that we sow in tears. In parenting and in marriage and in our work and in school and in church. Uh, Maybe for some of us, just getting out of bed in the morning is God's calling on your life. It's all you can do and it's all he asks of you is to just stay alive and just to function. Uh, You might be a kid. Going through your schoolwork, you might be a mom changing your 20,000th diaper, you might be living in a nursing home, you might be recovering from surgery, you might be caring for an aging parent, but no matter who you are, God has given every one of us a calling. God has given us a vocation, a purpose, and a work to do. When God is done with you, he will take your life exactly how and when he wants, but until then, he says, I've got something for you. You have a calling. And yet, almost everything that we should be doing in these callings is not going to be impressive or spectacular. 
By and large, it's very ordinary. It's boring. It's often painful and disappointing. You might wonder, as you're going through, if it's all been a waste, if anything is going to come out of it. You might be wondering, have I missed out on something great that God wants for me? This is also ordinary. It's also simple. But as we accept God's calling on our lives, we trust Him to take our plodding labors in this world and transform them into something glorious in the world to come. Our works of sowing, all the ways that we give up ourselves and our resources for God's sake and for the sake of other people, having to live like that, sowing like that, is really a kind of death. But the living God promises a joyful harvest. Listen to how Jesus puts it in the Gospel of John. He says, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So you see what he's saying. As the living God, God can and will bring life out of death. Here, Jesus is speaking first and foremost about his own resurrection from death. Not just a near-death experience, uh, not just even a miraculous restoration for him to die another time later, like many other people in the Bible. But Jesus' resurrection was the actual and majestic conquest of death itself. It means that the Christian hope of restoration is not just some pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking that we engage in because we're a bunch of losers who can't handle how hard the world is. Jesus' release from the captivity of death is God's historical guarantee in this world that he will one day release the whole universe from the captivity of death. This is why Jesus speaks in this passage about how we too can enjoy eternal life about how we too can be honored by the Father with this gift of resurrection and restoration. Now, of course, our psalm was probably written in the wake of Israel's own Babylonian exile. But the ultimate exile was Jesus' own crucifixion on the cross. Jesus suffering God's wrath for all of our sin. The psalm rejoices at how God has already worked mightily to restore his people. But the ultimate restoration was Jesus' resurrection. God did not just resist death. He reversed it. Even Jesus' own disciples could not believe it at the time. And yet, even after finally seeing and meeting with Jesus a bunch of times in a row, they finally realized what's happened. They were like dreamers. Their mouths were filled with laughter. They were awestruck at God's wonderful conquest of death in Jesus. And then Jesus sends out his disciples into the world. Go tell the world about this restoration. Jesus says, I promise that I'm going to come back and tell them I'm promising to come back to conquer death once and for all. And that I will raise from the dead everybody and anybody 
who has loved to follow me in this way of new life. And so that's where we're at today. We look back with awe at the invasion of God's ultimate restoration into this world. That's what the resurrection of Jesus is. And it's on that basis that we now look forward with hope to the final victory of God's ultimate restoration, even though in the meantime we are sowing with tears. We close with the Apostle Paul's description of this very dynamic in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, a letter that is largely concerned with Paul's own suffering and what it means for him as an apostle. Listen to how Paul starts by talking about the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for him today. Paul says, We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So we do not lose heart. Paul says, Though our outer self is wasting away, think sowing, tears, crying, pain, loss, Our outer self is wasting away. Paul says, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The new creation is a reality even for the weeping Christian. Now listen to this and we'll close here. Paul says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we offer to you this morning, and I offer on behalf of this people, our tears. So often, Father, we wonder if it's all a waste. We wonder if you hear and you see. But we see, especially in the coming of Jesus, entering into this world of darkness with all of its pain and loss, we see that you do hear, you do notice. But based on Jesus' resurrection from death, we rejoice, knowing that our tears don't have the final word. We look forward to the day when we will be able to rejoice and rejoice fully. Strengthen us and equip us so that we might make it all the way to death and beyond. Trusting in you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.